Ben, hello. Hello. We're here a pre-episode because I know what the best of the best part nine is, but you don't yet. No. So maybe it'd be fun if I give you the candidates and then you uh, yeah. may as well say nominees. Yeah. And you tell me which one you think won. So this is not that long ago, just two years ago in 2019. Are you ready? I am. Here were the candidates, the nominees. Episode 672, The Catholic Crisis, A Time for Rage. Okay. Episode 679, Horror and the Family. Episode 708, Narrative Transcendence. Episode 711, Infinite Entertainment. Episode 725, It's Time to Travel to Time Travel Talk. And finally, episode 729, What If Adam and Eve Had Not Sinned? Ben, what do you think? I think it's going to be Narrative Transcendence. All right. I'm going to say the title right now, and you're about to find out. Are you ready? Yep. Episode 1003, The Best of the Best, Part 9, Narrative Transcendence. That's fantastic. I didn't even remember. I'm just that good at guessing things. Welcome to the Sci-Fi Christian, bringing you theology at warp speed. I'm Ed Edison. I'm Ben Bono, and I don't... I, I don't really remember this episode, but I, I can kind of guess what it's about. Well, I've got the description here. All right. In this episode, we conclude Ben's narrative theology talks. Oh. I'll, go, I'll read on. Ben breaks down how narrative can draw you into transcendent experiences and how it often doesn't happen in the way you'd expect. Oh, that sounds great. Yeah. All right. So we're going to get to that right now. Uh, this episode, Narrative Transcendence, was originally episode 708. We released it on March 17th, 2019. Are you ready to do that time travel music? I am. Always. Episode 708, Narrative Transcendence. Welcome to the Sci-Fi Christian Bring You Theology at Warp Speed. I'm Matt Anderson. And I am Ben Bono. We're back. We're back. And Ben, you promised it. And tonight we pay off this ongoing narrative theory. Uh, not, I mean, a little bit of a series, but I think what, there was, this is only the third part, maybe fourth part. Yeah, I have a bone to pick with you because you, you told me that... Uh, I called you out last week. You did. And it was more just to mess with you. Uh, well, you know, I, I just want to say that not only do I have things for this episode, but this episode was the whole point of the series. This is what I wanted to talk about. So, yeah, last week I speculated. You are fake news. Last week I speculated that you didn't actually know how to end the series. <laughs> and that's why we're here in March <laughs> it a, 2019. It was a George R. R. Martin situation. Uh, no, but you've been busy. I've been busy. We had to right. take last week off, and we have to take next week off. So, um, well, actually, it's nice that we're doing some extra episodes here. They won't even notice that that we're taking some time off. We're not really doing extra. We're doing an extra episode. No, we're doing three main feed episodes instead of just two. Because usually we do an two... extra episode. One extra episode. Oh, okay. I see what you're saying. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. <laughs> I know. Uh, so, Ben, take it away. Tell us all about the the end of this narrative trilogy. All right. So this uh, episode is going to be largely informed by Paul Schrader's book on transcendental uh, narrative. He has a book they published, I think, in the late 60s and then issued a reprint or new edition about five or six years ago uh, on how narrative, specifically cinema, uh, can be used as 
a form of transcendent experience. And I think that his observations are right on point. I really like what he has to say. It's not just going to be his thoughts. Of course, I'll have my own thoughts along the way as well. Um, but he has a lot of good stuff. So uh, Paul Schrader, for those of you who aren't familiar with that name, he is the screenwriter of movies like Taxi Driver, I think Raging Bull as well. Um, he had a movie out that he directed last year called First Reformed. He's done a lot of work with Martin Scorsese. So somebody who's been around the film industry for a long time has made some great movies. Uh, Taxi Driver, I think, especially I, I didn't, I haven't rewatched that since I read this book, but Taxi Driver has a lot of these types of elements that he's talking about in the narrative. It's actually a, a very religiously informed film, uh, and it's pretty fascinating to watch uh, from that aspect. Okay, so that's one aspect of this episode is that book. But really, what what got me interested in this topic is a couple of things. So th this topic is going to kind of combine a couple of things we've talked about at different times in the history of the podcast. One of which is narrative and how stories work and why stories are important and all of that. But then the other one is this concept of the transcendence, which a couple of years ago we did a number of episodes on transcendence, that whole uh, how not to change the world series. And, and I think we did an episode on transcendence and aesthetics, and this is going to be maybe a nice complement uh, to that episode. I look back over the notes for that one. I don't think there's going to be much, if any, overlap between the two, but I think they'll fit well together. Um, and maybe the only point of overlap is we'll maybe just recap a little bit of what I mean when I say the transcendence. And then finally in this episode, um, and I'm, these aren't necessarily going to be sequential story transcendence in this third point, but more intertwined throughout, is going to be uh, to focus on the parallels between the type of stories and narrative structures Paul Schrader is talking about and liturgical structures, which is of high interest to me and I think will fit in well with a lot of our themes here on the show. So that's where we're going. Awesome. It's going to be a great conclusion here in 2019. Fantastic. <laughs> you, know, you, you say that as though we started like five years ago. It was like <laughs> back half of 2018. That's probably so, true. Yes. All right. So let's talk about uh, transcendence. What do we mean when we talk about that, especially for those of you who haven't heard uh, those earlier episodes from a couple of years ago or need a little bit of a refresher on what we mean or just, you know, because thoughts change over time. This is maybe the 2019 version of Ben's thoughts on what we mean as the transcendence. So I was thinking about this a little bit because this is obviously a difficult thing to really wrap our hands around. What are we talking about when we say transcendence? Well, I would like to make a distinction between the transcendent proper and anything which is transcendent. So on a very technical level, I could say I could define transcendence for myself or for yourself or for any individual. It is that which is 
beyond you or that which is not you. So in a certain perspective, if we want to get really technical about it, though, of course, this isn't what we typically mean when we talk about transcendence, uh, any interaction that brings in things beyond yourself, so any sense data could be taken as a form of transcendence, lowercase t. In other words, our senses, any conversation with somebody, they reach beyond my self-contained reality into uh, another's reality. So you have a conversation with some about something and you share your thoughts with them, they share your thoughts with you, their thoughts with you, you're both receiving data, you're both receiving ideas and sense, sensory data and all of this that you would not have access to on your own. So in a sense, if we limit the, our scope to just the individual, anything that comes into the individual that is not the individual is transcendent to that individual. In other words, it is something that is beyond them. Okay, but that's small potatoes in the grand scheme of things because we can still, you know, even though I can't prove anything be absolutely to myself beyond myself, uh, we can say with reasonable confidence that there is reality beyond me and I can learn all sorts of things about that reality that are repeatable and provable and factual and true and all of that. Okay. So then we, if we broaden this out beyond myself and we say, let's consider not just the individual, let's consider humanity as a whole. And we have this whole, um, aspect of what is the sum total of human knowledge? What is the sum total of human capacity for knowledge? In other words, if we think of everything that humans know about everything right now, um, we could say that anything that goes beyond that is in one sense transcendent for humanity, though I would even push that a little bit farther and say anything Rather than just limiting our scope to that which humans know, I would say anything which humans are capable of knowing. So there's actual human knowledge, the things we know now, and there's potential human knowledge. In other words, a nice little example of this is that a hundred years ago, um, the ability to uh, the internet was not part of actual human knowledge, right? Right, But it was potential human knowledge. Even if humans didn't realize they had the potential to create computers and the internet and all of that, even on a theoretical level, um, that potential was there. Humans are capable of that knowledge and of that. So anything that's truly transcendent uh, to, the to the human experience would be uh, that which is beyond not only humans' actual knowledge, but humans' capacity for knowledge. So a movie like 2001 touches on this theme in that 2001 isn't dealing with God, not with the transcendent proper, which we'll get to in a moment, but is dealing with a form of transcendence that is beyond human uh, humanity on a fundamental level. Okay, so both of those are forms of transcendence, but they're not really what we're talking about when we talk about the transcendent capital T. So the transcendent is that which is beyond, period, full stop. So reality, okay? In reality, you have reality, and then you have the part of reality that you can perceive, and you have the part of reality that humans can perceive, but then there's a greater layer of reality that is beyond what humans are um, capable of perceiving. But then what is beyond that? What's beyond reality? That's what we would call the transcendent. 
Okay, that which is beyond the created universe, that which is beyond any number of created universe, that which transcends, I know we're not supposed to use the word when defining the term, but that's what transcends all forms of reality, all forms of our ability to perceive it or comprehend it or even theoretically comprehend it. Okay. When we talk about that which is beyond human potential and that which is simply beyond reality, period, the line between those can be pretty blurred, but I think it's a worthwhile distinction to make. So in a sense, you'd say, well, you're talking about God. Yes, God is transcendent, but I even, you know, for the purpose of defining the transcendence and defining the human need to get at the transcendence, even naming it God is going a step too far. We're presuming too much at that point. Uh, when we talk about the basic human need to get in touch with transcendence, we are talking about religion. We are talking about God. We are talking about religious experience. But even before that, we're simply talking about the basic human need to reach beyond ourselves. And that goes all the way back to all three of those levels. My need to reach beyond myself as an individual, humanity's need to reach beyond its current capacity and current level of knowledge into its potential knowledge, humanity's awareness of something beyond even its potential, and then ultimately ultimate transcendence, which is what we would call God, um, but not a defined God at this point. A definition of God would have to come through revelation and uh, all of that, which, you know, is is beyond the scope of what we're talking about in the immediate. So does that make sense? Kind of. Yeah, I'd say kind of. Okay. <laughs> I'm sorry I was with us. Okay. Hey, do you happen to remember the name, just real quick, of the episodes that you did? I, I was going to look them up to direct people to those past episodes. Uh, is there anything ringing a bell? One of them was called How Not to Change the World. Okay. I can find that one pretty easy. Mm -hmm. What was it? But there was there was one that was uh, like, like something aesthetics aesthetic. and transcend. I don't know. Okay. I'll, I'll try to find it. All right. All right. So when we talk about transcendence then, if whether or not there is anything transcendent, whether or not there is a God, all of that is an open question at this point. I'm not talking about my own personal beliefs. I'm talking about if we just take this systematically in terms of uh, this discussion. But in my opinion, what is a non-negotiable or is, is an observable fact is the human desire for the transcendent. Okay. So humans have this inborn desire for the transcendent. And so then the question becomes, how do we get there? And that's where we get to the content of this episode, because two ways that we can get there, two ways that humans believe that we can get there or attempt to get there. One of which is in the form of religious experience, particularly liturgy, because not all religious activity is necessarily conducive to accessing the transcendent or to transcendental experience. And the other one is narrative. And again, we're not talking all narrative, but a specific type of narrative um, that is meant to get us in touch with the transcendent, or even not, we could even broaden it beyond just narrative, a form of art. So Paul Schrader says this, that the proper function of transcendental art is to express the holy itself, the transcendent, and not to express or illustrate holy feelings. 
that's a very important point when we start talking about how do we get in touch with the transcendent in the form of liturgy or in the form of art, because we need to make we need to be very very careful here to not mistake emotional experience with all of its pros and cons, good things, bad things, doesn't matter. We're not here to evaluate that with transcendent experience. Emotion does not equal transcendence. A transcendent experience may produce emotion, but we can never equate the two. And this, to in, in my opinion, is kind of a pitfall that a lot of modern Christianity tends to be falling into with a highly emotional emphasis um, in terms of worship and in terms of all of this. And it's like, okay, maybe that's good, maybe it's not. We're going to put that to the side, but whatever it is, good, bad, indifferent— We'll probably have to take a case-by-case basis. It's not an actual accessing of the transcendent. And part of why we have to be so careful here is that emotions are actually fairly easy to manufacture. So I haven't seen the Lego movie 2, but I've been hearing the soundtrack as my kids have been listening to the soundtrack. And there's a song on the Lego Movie 2 soundtrack called The Catchy Song. Are you familiar with The Catchy yes, Song? Yes, I am. We, I took my kids to see the Lego Movie 2. This was the first movie that all four of us, my wife and two kids, all went to together. So The Catchy Song is, in fact, rather catchy <laughs> by design. And it's actually brilliant because the lyrics are, this song is going to get stuck inside your head. This song is going to get stuck. And then it, it repeats it like that. Yes. And so the song has no content whatsoever, but it is written in a way where you feel it manufactures something inside of you where it feels like something of importance. It is catchy. It feels exciting. It's all of this stuff. And so it's a brilliant illustration of this point because absolute nonsense lyrics, intentionally fluffy lyrics that mean nothing, present from a purely emotional standpoint, if you just pay attention to the the emotions or the feelings or the experience that the music is meant to raise in you, it's manufactures something that isn't there. And so emotion is manufacturable. This is a real big danger in my opinion for contemporary Christianity because we 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 oftentimes mistake the manufacturing of emotion for transcendent experience. And the thing about transcendence, the first thing we have to say is that transcendence defies manufacturing. You cannot manufacture it. So in a sense, we have a bit of a paradox off the bat, is that we we want to be able to say we have forms, we have liturgy, we have art, we have narrative that leads us to the transcendence, but right there the whole concept of leading somebody to the transcendent is false. It just doesn't work. If you have created the transcendent, you have not created the transcendent. And so you can't actually manufacture it. And even Paul Schrader makes this point that when we talk about if I have a transcendent experience and I want to let you have that same transcendent experience what I cannot do is try and create that transcendent experience 
for you. What I actually have to do is create the space for transcendence to happen. And the only way that I can communicate my experience of the transcendence with you is if we share a transcendent experience together. If we, at the same time, commune with the transcendent. Otherwise, it's incommunicable. And so that's the goal of transcendent art and transcendent liturgy is not to create an emotional or transcendent experience. It is to clear the way for the transcendent. And I hope that will become clear as we go. So Schrader says this then on that point. He says, a certain form, the mass or transcendental style, expresses the transcendent. A viewer perceiving and appreciating the form undergoes the experience of transcendence. He then seeks to evoke that same feeling in his friend. He tells his friend exactly how he felt. His friend is curious and fairly amused, but does not share the speaker's transcendent feelings. In other words, no matter how much I describe it to you, I can't communicate it. In order to successfully induce transcendence in his friend, the viewer would have to had to transform his feelings into a form in which his friend could perceive the transcendent and then experience the transcendent. I can't communicate it to you. The only way to communicate it is to actually create the, the means for transcendent experience. So there's a paradox here. All right. So now we move on to transcendent and narrative. So what Paul Schrader has done is he has observed uh, a style of cinema that leads, lends itself to transcendent experience, calls it transcendental uh, cinema. Um, the, his book focuses on three directors, uh, Yashizuro Ozu, who you watched uh, late La spring, spring or early spring, whichever he, he has both of those are his late movies. Spring. Late, late spring. Yeah. Late spring. Mm -hmm. I can't remember. Yeah. Late spring. So Yasujiro Ozu, um, Robert Bresson, who's a French director, and uh, uh, Carl Theodore Dreyer, who did uh, The Passion of Joan of Arc and some other movies that I've talked about. And then in his new introduction for his new edition of the book, he talks about a number of other directors along the way, just kind of in uh, short form. So he observes that all of these these narratives that induce transcendence or lend themselves to the transcendence have certain things in common with what they're doing, which is that they tend to be slow movies. They tend to be movies that have lots of long takes. They tend to have a lack of camera movement. They have all of these elements that are very peculiar to them. So what is going on in this narrative? So what Schrader does, and, he, and these are my words assimilating his book so this isn't in his book that this is my assimilation of it is that there is a pattern within transcendent narrative that goes something like this it begins with absence a, a sense of something not being there something we would normally expect in movies and we'll break these down in a moment this absence leads itself to a point of stasis of complete stillness and through that stasis, the transcendent breaks through. Okay, so absence. Let's start there. What are we talking about when we talk about absence? Well, we're talking about, you think about all, what are the things you expect in a movie? Not, and just, just on a very technical level, you expect for there to be actors, and you expect those actors to embody roles, and you expect those roles to form a plot, and you expect there to be different scenes, and there's going to be some action, and the camera's going to do this and that. And transcendental style 
has a lot of those elements. You'll have characters, you have a plot, but it sense it, uh, it, it, its goal in part is to suck out of those elements everything that you would normally expect. So we think about a great performance. You know, you, you were talking about Lincoln, Daniel Day-Lewis, one of the great actors of our time. He would never have been cast in one of the transcendental, uh, one of these transcendental directors. They chose non-professional actors. Why? Because they delivered their lines in a more wooden, staid way. Why? Because that, you suck out that element of dramatic, believable acting from it. And then you have plots, and so there is a story. But that story often involves long, drawn-out points. It involves not the typical action we might expect, but because you, know, you saw late spring, mm-hmm. um, family drama, something very pedestrian. And so we expect a plot to escalate and go through, you know, the rhythms of a plot that we can we can chart and feels familiar. And instead, we get that sucked out. And then we have scenes and camera movement. But whereas um, normally, and especially today, we're used to a lot of fast cuts, and we're used to movies that that we only tend to stay on a shot for a couple seconds, if that. But now in transcendental cinema, we get these long takes and we get slow scenes. And, you know, Bellatar, who is a more recent director, but he has a movie called Satan Tango uh, that famously begins with 12 minutes of cows running around. (laughs) And it's like you have scenes like that. And so obviously that's an extreme example. But you have all of that. And you have a sense of that there's realism in the sense that transcendental plots aren't dealing with exciting things they're not dealing with supernatural they're not dealing with the extraordinary they're dealing with the everyday so there's realism in that sense but then there's non-realism in other words we don't want to get so sucked into the story where everything is believable we want unbelievable aspects but then the really interesting thing about this is that uh as a part of this there's this whole one of the, the effects of this is boredom and what's fascinating is that normally we would consider boredom to be a negative thing how was the movie it was boring that's a pejorative uh, declaration but in transcendental cinema it's actually the opposite that boredom becomes a tool to achieve so i'm going to read a fairly lengthy uh section from schrader here and then we'll break it down a little bit but he says Speaking of boredom as an aesthetic tool, deny the viewers what they seek. Deny, deny, deny. Why would a viewer put up with such abuse, such boredom? Well, most viewers don't. Most slow films are, in fact, boring, and the lovers of slow cinema are relatively small in number. Some slow films have the opposite effect. They hook the viewer. They calculatingly use boredom as an aesthetic tool. Boring morphs into mesmerizing. These are truly important films. Why do we take it, the boredom, the distance? First, because effective slow cinema filmmakers are masters of anticipation, employing striking visuals and auditory tricks and bits of activity, the slow film director keeps his viewers on the hook, thinking there is a reward, a payoff just around the corner. It's adroit blackmail. If I leave, I'll miss what I've been waiting for. Even the seasoned viewer of slow cinema anticipates something, some moment, some unexpectation. The wait will be worth it. Second, because something is happening. Cinema lets us look around. Good slow cinema gives us something to see when we do. Third, 
The third reason has to do with the act of theater going. Going to a film is like going to a church. A commitment is made. I've come here of my own will, and I accept the rules. One doesn't leave a church service after a half hour because it's boring. Some films prey upon this pact between the viewer and the viewed. Fourth is what Haladin called the will to boredom. This results in the passionate yes, the Nietzschean yes, that endures while standing before the meaninglessness of a subjective world in the hopes of seeing more, of creating meaning where none exists. All right, so there's a lot there. So let's break that down a little bit. So he says that boredom is an aesthetic tool, and then he gives four reasons for why. And the first one is that boredom actually becomes an aesthetic tool. And here we start to get our first hints of where we're going with how we get to the transcendent in narrative. Is that you have a slow movie, okay? So your first reaction, you think about if you assuming you're you're not used to this type of cinema, you don't know what you're getting yourself into. So you sit down, you watch one of these movies, and your first reaction has got to be something's going to happen. And then you realize nothing is happening. And you think, nothing's going to happen. And that upsets you as a viewer. You want something to happen. The, the, the expected rules of narrative have now been violated. Okay? And so at this point, most people are going to give up. You're going to go find something better to do with your life where something is happening. But what if you stay in that moment? What starts to happen next as you push through the boredom? What happens is that you get a sense of anticipation building. So there's a brilliant movie, and I wouldn't call it a transcendental movie, but it, it shares this trait, at least, of using boredom as a tool, uh, called Jean Dielman. It's a, a Belgian movie, I believe. Uh, and it's absolutely brilliant. It's like a three-and-a-half-hour movie. And it's about this lady, Jean Dielman, and we just watch her go through the routine of her day. She does the dishes. She makes dinner, she goes to the shop, and she does all of these incredibly boring things. And so you have this experience of the viewer of, like, what is this movie that I'm watching? And you think, well, okay, so when are we going to get to the plot? And then slowly you start to realize, we are at the plot. The plot is her going through her day and doing all this stuff. And then at that point, you do one of two things. You either turn off the movie, you're 20 minutes in, you think, well, I got another three hours to go on this guy, I'm out, or you keep watching. And if you keep watching, what begins to happen is that you start to get sucked in, and you watch, you really watch, and you start to realize that through the simple act of watching this character do boring things, we start to learn a great deal about her. We start to realize that she has a strong rigidity in the way that she goes about everything and there's this constant repetition from one day to the next as she's doing the dishes and taking care of her son and and doing you know cooking dinner and all of this stuff and there's this cold rigidity to what she's doing and then we start to wonder what will happen when something goes wrong with that routine and that's the tension of the movie. The movie almost becomes a thriller. It's a three and a half hour thriller based on a woman doing the dishes because we start to realize eventually something's going to go wrong and she won't be able to handle it. And what's brilliant about the film, and I'm not going to give everything away, but that when something does go wrong, it's not as though it suddenly explodes into this fury of action, but it's that the tiniest deviation from what we've been watching feels monumental 
like it's just a brilliant brilliant use of boredom in this movie of of that that by the time things go off the rails it's only very subtle but it feels monumental because of how rigid and controlled everything has been to that point okay so that's one thing that's going on but then the second his second point then is that we start to look around so most there's there's a statistic regarding cinemas called asl average shot length Okay, so how long is the average shot in a movie? And for most movies, it's a matter of seconds, two, three seconds. Okay, action movies, it tends to be lower because you have a lot of frenetic cuts. You know, dramas, it might be a little longer, but it's pretty rare to see a movie get above, say, five or six seconds. It's just the nature of cinema that long takes are rare. And even takes that and, are long. And I'd say they're noticeable. They're noticeable, yeah. right. And even, you know, you might have some stuff like Serenity begins with an extended long take, but it's going through the ship and everything. And so, yes, it's one unbroken cut, but there's a lot happening in there, uh, which is different than what Schrader is talking about. So you have a movie. And so what, what this has done is we're, we're kind of programmed then to expect certain things when we're watching cinemas. Uh, we have uh, a shot comes on the screen and... It can be for any number of purposes. It can be aesthetic. It can be for action. You know, some shots, especially in action scenes, are so short, they're not even meant to convey any information. They're meant to convey a sense of urgency. And so shot comes on the screen. We absorb it for a second or two. We move on to the next one. And so it's the same pattern that we're used to. So a long take then does something different. Is that, again, you have that same sense of, I've now absorbed everything I'm expecting to absorb, but this shot is still up there in front of me. And what do I do with that? And Paul Schrader's saying is that we push through that boredom that results and there becomes a sense of awe. There's a sense of you start to see things there that you wouldn't have seen if it had only been up there for a few seconds. It becomes like looking at a painting in a gallery as opposed to just flipping through a, you know, a, a magazine or something like that. And then you have cinema as liturgy. And I really like this third point where he says that we come to cinema of our own will and we accept the rules. And there's a certain pact with slow cinema. There's a sense of that you give yourself over to the artist. And this is a mark of a great film. It's like most movies, most uh, narrative experiences, this doesn't happen. We hold the artist and we put ourselves in a judgment seat above the art, which is fine. We're evaluating it. We're thinking, do I enjoy this? You know, to your point from our news episode, our discussion of Schindler's List, I was like, do I enjoy this? Do I like this? Is this fun? Is this interesting? Am I being moved emotionally? We're judging. We're judging. You know, and I don't mean judging in a pejorative sense. We're, we're just thinking through this. But to truly experience transcendental cinema, we have to flip that, essentially. We have to say, no, I'm not judging. I am accepting. I am putting myself in the hands of what happens here. And then there's this, out of all of this becomes his fourth point, this desire for meaning. So we have an absence. We Everything we've expected has been sucked away, and we're left with a big vacuum. And then we move on to stasis. But I'll stop and ask you if this makes sense so far. Yeah, so it started out, and I was like, oh, boy, I don't know what's happening. But then when we started talking about that woman's movie, pretty good there. Oh, fantastic. Uh, so yeah, so that got me kind of interested in that movie. Well, that's <laughs> and then, great. And then I got thinking he's actually doing this boredom thing with this episode. <laughs> like, 
drawing them in, and then boom. So I think it's coming along. I think you hit your stride around the 25-minute mark. Well, I I wasn't so much looking for an evaluation, but thank you. So, All right. Yeah, so let's get, but it, since you did pause, I took some time to find those other episodes. Okay. So if anybody wanted to catch up on this narrative theory series, uh, we started episode 663, narrative theory, and then episode 669, narrative realism. So that's this this series we're in. The previous series, uh, The Theology of Aesthetics, started at episode 556. Then episode 563 was called The Question of God. Episode 567 was called How Not to Change the World. Episode 574 was Aesthetics and the Transcendent. And then finally, the conclusion, episode 586, Bible Fatigue and the Transcendent. There you go. So that was a five-parter. Well, fantastic. All right. Should we get to stasis? You know, I guess, I'm, I, guess I don't know for a fact that that last part was, but I think Bible Fatigue and the Transcendent was part of that series. Looks like it should have been. Could have been. Check it out. Let us know. Yeah, let's talk about stasis. All right. So stasis, everything's been sucked away in in the process of absence, and we're left with nothing. Stasis is what occurs then is kind of the natural conclusion of that. So there's another Yasujiro Ozu movie called Tokyo Story. And Tokyo Story, uh, in my mind, just has a, a great example of how this works in that um, – the mother figure, the, the matriarch of the family in Tokyo Story dies at some point, uh, fairly late in the movie. So, spoiler, but it's an old movie and so, you know, doesn't apply. Anyway, mom dies, right? And at the point where mom dies, there's a sense where we've been through so much absence and there's, we are genuinely desiring some kind of emotion to come from the movie. And it denies us still. We get fake emotion from people who are disingenuous with their emotions regarding this event, but we never get any genuine emotion from the film in this traumatic moment. It sucks everything away. It has this thing happen. And then it leaves us in this vacuum and this vacuum demands to be filled. And that's the distinction between absence and stasis. Absence is the sucking away. Stasis is when we reach that moment where something must fill this void. Something has to come in here. So Schrader says this, complete stasis or frozen motion is the trademark of religious art in every culture. It establishes an image of a second reality which can stand beside the ordinary reality. It represents the holy other. So stasis brings us to the point where we are now ready to step beyond the narrative. The gates are opened. The narrative has done its job. It sucked everything away. Now we're ready for the transcendent. So Schrader says that most transcendental art will stop here, that this is where it typically stops. Opens the door, but then it's up to the individual viewer to walk through that, to truly experience the transcendent. However, some... Later art uh, and later narrative moves through the door and liturgy moves through the door. So when I think about this in terms of the mass, it's like we've had the consecration. We've had the repetition. You know, we hear the same prayers and the same readings over and over again. And so there's a sense of 
boredom that comes in and, and the sense of repetition and I know what's going to happen and we move through all of the, the liturgical motions and everything. And then there's this moment before the Eucharist and it's a, there's a breath there. There should be in good liturgy, there should be a, a moment of anticipation. And it's like, okay, now we are on the threshold of transcendence and then we move through. And this is, from purely human terms, this is where we take a gamble and say, what is it that lies beyond us? What is that ultimate? Is there, there's either something there or there's nothing. Either we're faced with a meaningless reality or we're faced with God, the transcendent. Those are the only two options at this point. And that's part of what makes this type of narrative uh, simultaneously compelling and repulsive. We want it, we're compelled in that direction, but we also, I think, instinctively as humans understand the risk of reaching that point of stasis. And we're not sure how to handle that. It's like there is a risk there because you step beyond yourself in that way. The floodgates have been opened to the transcendent. It's time. We've reached stasis. What happens next? It's a very difficult question to answer, and I don't think it's one that we can give a definitive answer to except through the experience of the transcendence. Now, when it comes to actually stepping through this as it's represented in art, there's a great, great movie called Nostalgia uh, by Tarkovsky. And Nostalgia ends, it's about the, it's a writer who, it takes, it takes place in Italy, and it's a, a Russian writer or I don't remember if he's Russian. Tarkovsky's Russian. Uh, but the main character is sojourning in this Italian countryside trying to get his life together. And he's a mess and everything's a mess. And he meets somebody who uh, tells him that if you cross this communal pool with a candle without it being blown out, you will change the world. You'll redeem the world. It's a crazy moment. It's just a crazy idea. And so the end of the movie is this person reaching the point of desperation where that is, in fact, what he does. And there's an uninterrupted 13-minute shot of him walking forward. Candle goes out. He walks back. He relights it, goes forward, and finally reaches the end of the pool. That's the moment of stasis. Tarkovsky goes one scene further. And what we see then, the movie ends with a shot of him and a dog it starts as a close-up and then slowly zooms out, and they're just sitting in what appears to be a field. As we zoom out, we see that they're in the middle of an abandoned church. And it's an incredibly powerful image. It's like, that's the moment of transcendence. There's a peace. There's something beyond stasis in that moment. There's a fulfillment that you don't get in most transcendental cinema where it ends with stasis. And the parallel in liturgy, then, is something like the Eucharist, the truly transcendent moment. And in both cases, there's nothing there that you can manufacture. Either you walk through that door and you experience the transcendent, or you don't. You can feel good about having just watched a movie. You can feel good about having done your Catholic duty and going to Mass, but neither of those are equating to the transcendent. Either you walk through the door in that moment with the narrative or in the liturgy, or you didn't. All right. So all of that is to say that this whole narrative theory about how narrative works with transcendent, I think, is 
extremely important if we're going to understand uh, why part of why narrative is compelling. If we're going to understand our religious compulsions, if we're going to understand this, we I think we need to start to come to grips with that pattern of absence, stasis, transcendence, and realize that there is a human need there, that there is something there that we need to get at, that that is the purpose of at least part of our art and should also be the purpose of our religious experience. And I think that to sum it up, we would say that the message of all this, the observation of both comparing liturgy to narrative and what Schrader's talking about in his book is that we have this human need in transcendence, but ultimately the need is for us to get out of the way of trying to manufacture it so that it can happen. And that our human duty there is again, not to manufacture, but to seek out forms in art, in religion that allow us to that, that push us and everything else out of the way so that we experience the transcendent. And that's that. Wow. That was great. Uh, you spoiled a lot of old movies. Now I want to see them. I mean, right. which one would you recommend the most? That lady doing all the chores stuff? I mean, I, I think you'd hate it. You think I'd hate it? It sounds pretty good. Well, yeah, but I described it in two minutes. Yeah, I loved it. So you still have I, so three hours to go maybe i should just go write it on letterbox now you feel like i got <laughs> you, the gist I, you know you kind of got the gist that's a great movie i don't know uh you liked uh the one yes yeah, a ozo you saw so yeah. maybe tokyo story i nostalgia oh, is that what it is that i thought no no no. i thought it was uh gene dealman is the one i was yeah. describing and then i talked about tokyo story and you i talked about nostalgia up there. g no j e a n n e space d i e l m a n n Yeah, it's a it's a lengthy guy. All right, I found it. Oh, that's oh this fantastic. is in the Criterion Collection. It is. All right. Great. All right, Ben. Well, you've brought into this narrative theory ongoing series. What's next for 2019? Do you know what you're going to talk about later? Moby Dick. And Job, right? And Job. So we'll get to Job. So we have a lot of series this year. Moby Dick. T- uh, Wheel uh, yeah. of Time. Yes. Well, Wheel of Time is going to be... Job. It's so gonna be like excavating the X Files inside but worse. the hoop. In, uh, yeah, we gotta go to a game soon. We the do. Season's over pretty soon, yeah. right? Three really months soon. No, like well, playoffs in three months for the Timberwolves. It's open over in like a month. Oh man, we gotta do this. So, right. so there's a lot of things come up here at the Sci-Fi Christian. But for now, that's all from here. I'm Ben Anderson, and I am Ben DiPoto. We are the Sci-Fi Christian signing off. And goodbye. Do you think we'll ever do a series or an episode on the Chronicles of Amber? Well, maybe. I'm in the middle of those books right now. We could do... I saw you're enjoying them. No, I am enjoying them. We could do one uh, set, you know, the first set of five and the second set of five, so two episodes. Yeah. A little series, a little mini-series. All right. All right. Goodbye. Well, so long, folks. And we're back. Best of the best part nine, which means, listeners, there's only one left. Yeah. And so we'll do best of the best part 10, which will be the 2020 winner. Then early next year, we'll do the end of the, no, the beginning of the year, Listener Appreciation Jubilee for everything you've heard in 2021. And then at some point in early to mid 2022, we'll pick the best of the best episode for all There'll time. There'll be 11 candidates. Actually, I think there might be. I don't know if that's exactly right because I think we had a win or a, a tie one year. That's true. Um, so we'll find there out. There will be candidates of some number. Yes, there'll be. I bet there'll be 
11 to 12 nominees and you, the listeners, will be picking which episode is the best episode of the Sci-Fi Christian of all time. I'm excited. So at the beginning of this episode, I gave you some of the, the nominees and you guessed correctly. But I, I did love It's Time to Travel to Time Travel Talk. And I think you had plans at one point to do a series of what if episodes. You know, now because of Marvel, what if is sort of an out oh, there phrase. Yeah. Disney but, ruined it. But before that, you had this idea to do, well, for example, this one was episode 729, what if Adam and Eve had not sinned. But I think you were just kind of thinking through, is there other Bible stories we could do a spin on? We never, oh. They didn't take off, but I like that idea. So I feel free. I, I would want to. I'd want to invite you to feel free to come back to the idea. But I know love to come up with a different name. It, it, it depends on how the muse speaks. That's true. So, well, listeners, that's all from here. I'm Matt Anderson. I'm Ben Devono, and we're the Sci-Fi Christians. Signing off. Yeah, goodbye.